A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is part two on the Nesiva Shalom and the Slunim Dynasty, is sponsored in honor of Rabbi Benjamin Ginsberg, who has translated all of the Rabbi the Nesiva Shalom's Sfarim, Gems of the Nesiva Shalom in English. Uh, so we, we're going to get to part two now and talk, continue talking about the Nesiva Shalom, Reb Shalom Noach Berezovsky, the Slonim Rebbe, and uh, a little bit about the background, the Slonim Hasidic dynasty as well. Uh, before I get to that, I just wanted to mention uh, some of the exciting for the record columns that we've been having in the Mishpacha magazine uh, lately, this this week's, uh, this past week's, in other words, we had about Rabbi Yisuf Chaim Zunnenfeld and the various visits of uh, of world leaders to um, to Yerushalayim during his lifetime and what his attitude was towards greeting those leaders, which is always an interesting historic event. You, you encounter a leader, what do you do? A world leader, a, a president, a king, uh, whatever, um, going to greet them. And here you have the uh, rabbi of um, of part of the Yerushalayim Jewish community, of the Eidah Haredes Jewish community in Yerushalayim, and uh, what was his attitude towards world leaders. In the next few weeks, we're going to have some, so keep your eyes out for, for Mishpacha Magazine uh, um, for the record columns. There's more to come. We'll have some more interesting ones coming about about the Mir Yeshiva and about different war stuff that happened in that in that area with the Polish army. Different interesting, different twist than uh, standard Mir Yeshiva based Medrash stuff. And then also in the next few weeks we'll have very interesting tidbits about less well known, more obscure but very prominent rabbis on the American scene in their early years. Um, so keep your eyes out for that as well. There's also Purim coming up. And there's going to be, hopefully, some interesting things and funny, fun stuff on the podcast here, right here in Jewish History Soundbites, as well as in Mishpacha Magazine, uh, the latter. Mishpacha Magazine, of course, all those columns together with Davi Safir. So we move on to part two um, about Slanim. A bit more on the background, just to understand where where it comes from. Uh, but before, I, uh, before that, I want to finish up discussing the Nesiva Shalom himself, which I didn't 
get to finish in part one. So, Reb Shalom Noach Berezovsky, by now already the author of the Nesiv Shalom, he becomes the Slana Mareba in 1981, uh, while his father-in-law, the Birkas Avram, is still alive a few weeks later, and, and at his behest, uh, a few weeks later, the Rebbe of the Birkas Avram passes away, and now the Nesiv Shalom is the main Slanim Rebbe. I mentioned that there was another faction that broke off that becomes another Slanim, uh, you know, an, an offshoot of the Slanim dynasty in B'nai Brak. Um, so this, the Nesiv Shalom was a very uh, strong leader and also a very close with his Hasidim. Now, how is he so close? You have to bear in mind, first of all, it's not the largest uh, Hasidic community in the world. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, I think today it's, about 1,400 families of the Yerushalayim branch. They don't all live in Yerushalayim, obviously. I'm talking about where headquarters is. And then another, like, um, several hundred, five, six, seven hundred, something like that, of the B'nai Brak branch. So it's not, you know, it's 2,000 families. It's not crazy large. It's, you know, a nice, uh, honorable, respectable size. Um, but the reason is that he had such a close relationship, individual relationship with them, was because, very simply, because they were his students, I emphasized at length in part one about how he was primarily an educator, a Rosh Hashiva. Now, for four decades before he became Rebbe, uh, for from three decades, really, from 1950 when he opened the Yeshiva until 1981, he becomes the Rebbe. So he, um, he had guided them personally. Um, he even used to give, as a Rosh Hashiva, again, to his students, he used to even give them parameters in their private lives, which is something that Slanim became quite uh, well known for, which is another interesting aspect of it. And he was prominent in the Agudas Yisrael, um, as I said already before he became Rebbe, and he continues to do so, play an active role uh, following his rise to the premiership of Slanim. But he was more concerned with the Jewish people at large and the education of his own Hasidim than politics, which is which is very interesting because he kind of was a bridge builder and 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 you know beyond you know a in, especially in Israel, which is he's, he's living in Meish Aram and he's on the Agudas Yisrael, and yet he's not associated with either. He's not associated with the extremism of Meish Aram or with. The politics of Agudas Yisrael, because he was, he like I said, he was an, an educator and, and a Hasidic leader who was historically close with the Lithuanian Torah world, like I mentioned in part one. So one of the things he did, which is so fascinating, is that he stays out of the dispute of the late 1980s. In the late 1980s, saw a dispute uh, between Revelozer Menachem Shach, the Rosh Hashiva of Panovich, and the Ger Rebbe, the Leiv Semcha which leads to Rav Shach resigning from the Agudas Yisrael and founding his own polit- his rival political party called Degel HaTorah. And uh, so this, this causes a split, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the religious uh, party politics at the time. So what does the Nesiv Shalom do? He resigned from the Mayetzes and he told his Hasidim to vote for neither party during that election. Amazing, amazing, amazing statement. He tells them, don't vote for the Agudas Yisrael, and don't vote for Degel HaTayra, and he cites the Pasuk in Amos, in the Navi Amos, Hamaskil Ba'is Hahi Yidaim. The wise one during that time shall remain silent. It's better to stay quiet in certain situations rather than getting embroiled in a dispute, which is a, a quite a big statement. And, 
You know, see, all the listeners in the United States are wondering what's the big deal. So he didn't vote. In Israel, if you like, if you vote and who you vote for is basically more important than if you keep Shabbos or not. It's like the, the, the biggest statement of your religious identity is, is if you vote and who you vote for. So to get up and say, I'd rather not get involved in this the dispute and stay out of politics is, is like, you know, borderline heresy. So the, this whole picture together doesn't surprise, shouldn't surprise us so much why his farm are so popular by such diverse, uh, you know, across the board groups. And to understand it even better, I want to delve a little bit into the background of the Slunim Hasidic dynasty. We actually visit the town of Slunim on trips to Belarus. Uh, it's 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 not far from Baranovich. It's south of of south uh, west, I think, if I remember the map correctly, um, of Mir and and that area. So it's uh, it's 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 closer to to uh, the Polish border. And of course, during the interwar period, it was in Poland. Um, so it's a nice nice town. It's a nice sized town. It's not a little shtetl, and. Um, and it has an ancient shul, actually, hundreds of years old, and it's not not a shul anymore. It's like a, it's like a churban. It's like a totally destroyed, uh, you know. It's like spooky to kind of walk and be like climb in, and, and you walk through like this rubble, and it's really. I think I think I saw in the news recently that it was condemned and it might be torn down, and who knows? I haven't been there in a while, but it's a, a an amazing <laughs> an amazing shul. So that's that's London, but it's situated in the area what's known. To history as the area of it's not it's in the country of Belarus and it used to be the country of Poland, but it's in the Lithuanian cultural area. I guess we can call it that way, and it was known as a Litvish Hasidus. Oh, you know, there's several Litvish. You know, Lubavitch is like that, and and uh, and uh, Karlin to a certain extent is, is like that. Um, but um, but Slanim essentially comes from an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of Karlin. So it starts from Karlin. It goes to Kobrin, um, it goes to Lechevich, then Kobrin. I'll trace the whole thing. So there's a, it, what's interesting about Slonim is that it, its origins are in a teacher-to-student meritocracy. It took a very long time until it became a dynasty, which is also interesting. Um, some dynasties started early on, um, and some take pride in the fact that they started early on. Others were a meritocracy for a, for a century, or if not more, and uh, they take pride in the fact that it was a teacher-to-student meritocracy and not a dynasty until much later. So we go to the Magad of Mizrich, uh, Rav Daiv Ber, who was the prime disciple and successor of the uh, Baal Shem Tov, not the only one, but the main one. And uh, and his one of his main students is Rav Aaron Hagadol of Karlin, and he has a student named Rav Shloima of Karlin, who was not his son, who was a student of his, and his student is Reb Mordechai of Lechevich, uh, and also Reb Asher of Stalin, which is another another part of it. Um, Reb Mordechai of Lechevich was the is seen as the father of the Slanim dynasty, even though he was not he's not related to the Weinbergs. He was uh, he was the and and it's Lechevich, it's not Slanim, but he's considered the the uh, the uh, the father of the. Uh, you know, of of inspiration for 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 what happened. You know, what what uh, what uh, what it produced afterwards in, in Slanim, and he had a Talmud, Reb Moshe of Kubrin, who was the Kubriner 
Rebbe and had the Kabrina dynasty. There was another Hasidic dynasty. Again, it's, I guess not not so famous. He had Lechavich, he had Kabrin, and this first. Uh, I spoke about all the Ravram Weinbergs in the last uh, episode of Part One. So the first Ravram Weinberg uh, of uh, of Slanim, he is a Talmud of Ramayshev Kubrin, and it goes back to Ramatchav Lechavich, and he it becomes known by his Sefer, the Yesayir HaAvaida, and he's buried in Slanim. We go to his cover when we go there. And then it becomes a dynasty. So from Ravram Weinberg, and then all of a sudden, it does become a dynasty, so Slanim, uh, and retains the name uh, Islam. So the Yisaita Avaida, um, he's he was a, a you know a bit quite a, a, a renowned Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, and he had a yeshiva in in, in Slanim, and he was the Rish Yeshiva. Besides for being the Hasidic Rebbe, he was, so this this uh, lumdish uh, uh, flavor in the Slanim dynasty is from there from the beginning. In fact. The yeshiva was a Valajan style yeshiva. We know that uh, after the Valajan was founded in 1802 by Rechaim so there was a lot of yeshivas that were that mimicked it, that, that it, it spawned a movement, which is exactly what Rechaim Valajaner wanted. Most of those yeshivas didn't last a long time, so they have been forgotten to history, but there was quite a few, uh, some smaller, some larger. And here in Slanim, the Hasidic Rebbe, the Talmud of Kobrin and Lechavich has a Valajan style yeshiva, and this relationship, this this dialectic relation, this interesting relationship that he has with Litvaks, with non Hasidim, becomes a feature, a distinctive feature of Slan throughout its history, down to the Nasiva Shalom himself, as I illustrated uh, through his biography in part one. So his grandson uh, become, succeeds him as Rebbe. His, his son had predeceased him, and his son Reb Shmuel Weinberg um, becomes the Rebbe during World War One. Like many other Rebbes, they run to the big cities, exile, and the big city in that area is, of course, Warsaw. Like many of the other uh, Rebbes of Central Poland, so the uh, the Slonim Rebbe ends up in Warsaw, and he's buried there in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, which is, of course, another. Again, we go to that. We go much more often, rarely in Slonim in Belarus, but we're all the time in Warsaw, and it's very prominent. It was just redone the oil on him, so we go to the uh, it's the the Chaste Shmuel, Divrei Shmuel, something like that. Shmuel Weinberg of uh, uh, the Second Rebbe of Slonim. What's interesting is that there's a sidebar going on. The Yisaid Havaida sends a group of his Hasidim. In the 19th century, talking about in the, the mid-1800s, he sends them to settle in the land of Israel. And they build a Hasidic community in Tveria, a Slonim community in Tveria, including some of his own grandchildren. Uh, one of his descendants eventually becomes the Birka Savram, one of the, the, the Slonim Rebbe who rebuilds the Hasidis and the father-in-law of the Nesiv Shalom. And these seeds planted by the Yisait Avaida is, is what gave it, it, it was what gave Slonim the ability to rebuild a century later. So it's an amazing vision that he has. He had, you know, imagine that, he, that no one had any idea at the time, um, you know, th- th- what they're doing there. And uh, because the Islam community got completely wiped out during the Holocaust, so what enabled it to rebuild was this little nucleus of, of a community that had been sent so many decades earlier to Tveria, and from Tveria it moved, they, you know, shifted to Yerushalayim and Bnei Brak, and... Um, Tel Aviv also for a time, and that's how Slenim was rebuilt. Um, in fact, the Bavrom Kalisker, who is the head of the Hasidic uh, community 
of the original Aliyah of Chassidim in 1777, together with Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Vitebsk. So following Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Vitebsk's uh, uh, passing, so Rabbi Ram Kalisker leads the community. He, in fact, appointed Rabbi Mordechai of Lechevich to be in charge of the Kailul Raisin, the White Russia Kailul, to support the old Yishuv uh, um, um, Hasidic community in Tzvas and Tveria. Originally, it was the Balhatanya, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi. But as is well known, Rabbi Ram Kalisker and the Alter Rebbe of the Balhatanya got into a very, very sharp dispute, a very terrible and sharp dispute for the last, you know, long time. Um, and uh, Ravram Kalisker took away that appointment to uh, to uh, raise the funds and allocate the funds to, for the old Yishev. And Ravram Kalisker appointed instead Rav Mordechai Lechevich, who was the other prominent Rebbe in the uh, in the in White Russia, in in Rysin, in that area of of, of the Russian Empire. Um, so so there's this this um, this this so Rav Mordechai Lechevich already has this connection to the land of Israel, and then his his later his student of his student, uh, the Yisrael Avayda, sends a group of Hasidim to actually settle there. There was Karlina Hasidim in Tveria, and the Karliners and the Slanimers didn't get along, so there's this tension there, but they do grow, and the Tveria community would um, would be, uh, like I said, the nucleus uh, of the rebuilding as with the foresight of of the Yisrael Avayda so many years earlier. They, very, one of the well-known rabbis of the city of Tveria, Maisha Clears, was uh, in the early 1900s. He was the rabbi of Tveria for about 25 years. Very prominent, Paisik, very strong leader, outspoken. Um, so he was a slanim chassid. So it's just an example of someone how you know how prominent they were in the overall community uh, in Tveria. So after the Holocaust and the murder of the rebbe, Rabbi Shlaima David Yeshua Weinberg, Rashti, like I mentioned, the slanim community was decimated and leaderless. And and you have um, this this appoint they appoint uh, one of the senior Hasidim of the community to be become some sort of rebbe. Very interesting situation. Uh, the his name was Reb Mordechai Chaim Slonim. Now you have to understand the Tveria Slonim community was quite different than the Baranovich uh, Slonim community back in Europe that had been killed in Tveria. They even had adopted some Sephardic customs. Because uh, the majority of the Jews in Tveria, for all throughout all the years, were Sephardic, so the Slanim Hasidic community adopted some Sephardic customs. And the Beis Avram visited Palestine in 1929, and again in 1933, he told them to keep the customs of Tveria, and even if they moved to Yerushalayim, they should still keep the Slanim customs of Tveria. They should not keep the customs of Baranovich. So you have two different Slanims going on at the same time, even before the Holocaust. Later on, there was the first slanim based Medrash opened in Tel Aviv by the brother, ironically, of Reb Shalom Noyach Berzovsky, his older brother. Uh, later on, they moved this based Medrash to Bnei Brak, and, 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 and there they kept the customs of Baranovich. So the slanim community in Israel eventually adopted two different systems. One was the Tveria one that had that had some Sephardic customs, and then there was the Bnei Brak uh, branch that had kept the original customs from Slanim in in Europe. So what's interesting is that now there's two factions of Slanim, one in Yerushalayim and one in Bnei Brak, and in fact the Bnei Brak keeps the Baranovich customs, and the one in Yerushalayim keeps the Tveria customs. So you have you have the roots of that already in the 1930s, even though the split only happened in 1981. 
Um, so anyway, so in any event, this Reb Mordechai Chaim, with the great last name of Slonim, becomes the head of the community, but he refuses to be referred to as Rebbe. He doesn't even want to become the leader at first. Finally, in 1950, five years after the war, he agrees to become the leader of the community, but he is not to be called Rebbe or Rav or any official title. He said, I'm willing to lead without any official title. He didn't want it to become anything official. And he passes away uh, four years later in 1954. It's interesting, he was a big kanoi. He was an extremist, very anti uh, uh, the Zionism and and and, and election not, not to participate in voting or elections, and and what's interesting is that the base of Rum in Europe, uh, when he was affiliated with the Agudis Yisrael, and the Birkas of Rum in post-war Israel were both Agudists. They're both members of the Agudis Yisrael, and the Birkas of Rum Sanuwa, the, the Nesivas Shalom, the subject of uh, of, of this series, uh, Reb Shalom Nayach, and his son, the current Rebbe, Reb Shmuel. Uh, they they're they're considered even more the uh, uh, more liberal as so to speak not not exactly a very conservative uh, um, uh, community but in certain in the political sense I guess they're a bit more on the liberal side of the Aguda and uh, so here you have lots of freedom um, within the different rebbes of uh, of of Slonim. Uh it's very unique I don't know of any other. Hasidic dynasty, that that's the case, that politics and leadership are not necessarily consistent or intertwined. In other words, the political positions of the Rebbes are not the defining feature of what makes the Hasidic, Hasidic community its traditions, what maintains its traditions. The traditions are in Torah, are in Hasidus, are in their customs, are in, like I guess, the important things and the, uh, the political ones uh, and their political positions they can differ from Rebbe to Rebbe. So it's an interesting historical phenomenon. I don't know if that existed in any, in any other community. Uh, just as another example of that, the current Rebbe, of Shmuel Berezovsky, this is already 15 years ago, so it's almost history. He, in 2000, 2006, I think, there were elections. They, they, he said, don't vote. His, uh, he's told his community of Slonim Hasidim, don't vote, no voting for the elections, 15 years ago, 16 years ago. So was that because he became a Kanoi? He said, you're not allowed to vote in the elections anymore? Is that what happened? No, that's not what happened. It, in fact, it was kind of the opposite. It was a protest against the Aguda. The Agudas Yisrael supported disengagement from the Gaza Strip in 2005. And since the Agudas Yisrael political party supported it, and the Islamic Rebbe was against it, so he said, you can't vote for the Aguda in the coming elections. Who are you going to vote for? You can't vote for any other party except for Aguda's Yisrael, so if you can't vote for Aguda, then better not to vote altogether in the elections. So that's a, a interesting uh, uh, um, you know, postscript to that. Um, in, in, in the Nesiv Shalom himself, Reb Shalom Noach, he initiated the only Hasidic settlement that I know of in the Shomron. Immanuel, a lot of Slanim Hasidim uh, live there, and there's this, they have a strong presence in Beitar, which is also a settlement, uh, and uh, and so that you have you have them, you know, living out in the settlements, which is uh, you know an interesting phenomenon, not, not not also not so common. I don't think you have, you know, too many like Ger or Bells or Toldosar and Hasidim living out in the Shomron. Um, so the uh, the leadership of the Nesiv Shalom goes well beyond the 1,400 families or 2,000 families 
of the Slanim uh, Hasidic uh, community, but uh, you know it's felt uh, well beyond that. And the fact that it exists altogether is a miracle because of how much it was decimated in the Holocaust. Speaking of which, one of the other unique things about the Nesiv Shalom, um, besides for his leadership, his charisma, his wisdom, and his vast writings of the Nesiv Shalom works, but what I found fascinating was the fact that he tackled the challenges of the times. He took on issues that were current events, which again, most Rebbes by their Shalashudas Tyro or by the Tish Friday night, you speak, you know, you speak about, uh, you know, very, you know, very more abstract, more in the, in the drush, in the in the in the in the parsha and Kabbalah and Chsidas, uh, not really addressing current events, which we would associate more with like a pulpit rabbi or something. Um, but he did. He confronted the Holocaust. He tried to explain the Holocaust, his best to, to give some meaning to it, give some spiritual depth to it. And he wrote an entire pamphlet to, to explain it and to, you know, he tried to give a, a very, quite a famous explanation of, of the, that the status of the Holocaust victims as Kedoshim, as people who are holy martyrs. In fact, in Slanim, they commemorate something of a Holocaust Memorial Day. Uh, not exactly a Holocaust Memorial Day, but something like it. The yard site of the Rebbe, the Rashti, who was killed by the Nazis, that's kind of like the uh, Holocaust Memorial Day in the community, in the, in the institutions of the community. They speak about the Holocaust uh, that day, so you have a, uh, an interesting phenomenon there also. And then the Six-Day War, another just good example of how he addressed current events, try to give meaning. What, what, what happened during the Six-Day War? What does it mean for, for us as a community, as Hasidim, as individuals, as families, as the country? Um, so he directly, uh, you know, was able to felt comfortable uh, confronting the the, uh, the the you know historic events that were taking place uh, during his time. Um, so that's uh, again this part two about Slanim and the Nesiva Shalom. This is Yehuda Gerber with History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda@yehudagerber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.